0: Good evening. We've started today reading through the book of Mark for the second time. So if you're following along or reading with me, 10 books for 2019, today's the 17th. And so we're back in Mark chapter 1 and going to read through the book again uh, for the rest of this month. <coughs> and you may wonder, well, I've just read the book. Why Why do I need to go back and read it again? Or how? how am I going to get anything else out of it? Uh, actually that you're probably going to get more out of it the second time through than you did the first time through. And and I've put out these cards. I just sat down one day and I thought, what well, what are some ways that you can read a book again and again and, and kind of gain from that repetitive reading? And so I made a list of ten things, ten ways that you can read a book again and again in the Bible uh, and benefit from that. And let me just give you a few of these. For example, number one, read the book with a printed map nearby. Mark the locations and the biblical reference on the map as you're reading chapter by chapter. Number two, read the book in another translation. That's what I'm doing. Uh, this time through, Mark, I'm reading through a totally different translation. And already, even in today's first chapter, gave me a different slant on some things, different ideas. Number three, read the book aloud. Just, you know, if you just read it out loud. Uh, number four, listen to the book online and follow the text. And I give you places on the note sheet where you can do these things, like BibleAtlas.org for the maps, BibleGateway.com for another translation, uh, Bible Gateway also for listening to the book online. Number five, journal as you read each chapter. Write a short paragraph summarizing each chapter and the takeaways you discover from from the text. So that's five of the ten. These cards are available out front and and wherever else you pick up things like that, uh, take it with you, grab it, and use it, help you to read books of the Bible again and again. That, that'll that be especially important not only for today or for this month, but also when we get to a short book like the book of James, be reading it several times, and that'll be a good good help for you. All right, so here's the plan. Tonight, we're going back to the book of Mark, and I want to start by if you guys could put the map up there, just to kind of review with you, remind you of where we've been, what we've talked about last week. <clears throat> the first nine chapters in the book of Mark deal with this area right here. Uh, essentially Galilee, but really what you're talking about is not just this territory of Galilee. What you're really talking about is the territory around the Sea of Galilee. That a lot of what Jesus did in his ministry took place around the Sea of Galilee. So he, most of his time right here, but sometimes went over into this area as well. But basically the, the northern part of Israel, what we would call Israel, first nine chapters in the book of, of Mark. Then in chapter, uh, chapter 10, we have the journey from Galilee down towards, and he went across the Jordan into Perea and then down to Jerusalem. Uh, heading, of course, towards the cross. And then the final week, so that's chapter 10, chapters 11 through 16 is right here, the final week in Jerusalem. So, so that final week of his life was so significant that those, what would it be, six chapters, I believe it is? 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, six, six chapters uh, of the book. The final week of his life uh, really is, is six weeks six chapters long. So, that's kind of what we've talked about. Remember now that Mark is the earliest of the four Gospels, also the shortest of the four, and it covers that time from the the Lord's baptism uh, to His resurrection. Uh, Again, about two-thirds of the time up here, and one-third of the time right here. Okay? So, in the last two weeks, we last two Sunday nights, we kind of got the big picture of Mark. I gave you a note sheet and you, you fill it out and, and uh, we kind of took the 30,000 foot view of the book of Mark. Now for the next three weeks, we're going to be taking an overview of Mark, going chapter by chapter. Uh, the goal is to take it in five chapter increments. So tonight we're going to be hopefully walking through chapters 1 through 5. Now, we're not going to have the time to study these things in depth. We're not going to have the time to dig into certain areas. And so, so we don't have an outline for you. We don't have, uh, you know, this fill-in-the-blank outline because really we're just going to walk through the text. We're just going to walk chapter by chapter and try to do it five chapters at a time. And, of course, the last session, uh, the last night of the month, uh, that actually will be six chapters because there's 16 chapters in Mark. So, any questions before we get started? All right, let's go to chapter 1. Again, we're just going to try to do an overview of Mark, walking chapter by chapter through the book. And let's start with chapter 1, verse 1. It's interesting how this book begins. There are three books in the Bible that talk about the beginning Genesis talks about in the beginning, Mark talks about in the beginning. And John, in his gospel, talks about in the beginning. Those are the three books in the Bible that, that refer to something in the beginning. Now, Genesis opens with the beginning of the world, of course. We talked about that last time. Genesis opens with the beginning of the world. Mark opens with the beginning of the gospel for the world. Make sure you get that. Mark opens with the beginning of the gospel for the world. Look how he describes it. Chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel... About, about who, church? Yeah, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, of course, what does the word gospel mean? You know this, but tell me, what does the word gospel mean? Good news. And what is, it, what is the good news? What about Jesus Christ? Say, He died for us. So, so the good news, God provided salvation through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Mark says in verse 1, I want to give you the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then verse 2 and 3 is like, wait a minute, I thought you were going to be talking about Jesus. In verse 2 and 3, look how it turns suddenly. Mark immediately referenced the Old Testament. Verse 2, it is written in Isaiah the prophet... I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, and make straight paths for him. This is really a composite prophecy, if you will, from the book of Malachi and the book of Isaiah. Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40 verse 3 were combined together and Mark uses that composite uh, prophecy to refer not to Jesus, but to refer to the one who was coming before Jesus. So he says in verse 1, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then he says, but let me take you back to the Old Testament. Let me take you back to the book of Isaiah. Now, and now he only mentions Isaiah here, though he quotes Malachi as well. Isaiah, the most prominent of the, of the two prophets. So, so he said, let me take you back to Isaiah, because Isaiah talks about one that is coming. But he's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about the one who would come before Jesus. Look at the text again, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, notice that, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now let me ask you a question. This is not a Republican or Democrat question. Not intended to be, all right? If President Trump came to Powdersville, do you think he'd just show up? No. He would have a a preparation team, right? He'd have a, a team of people who would come before, who would announce that he's coming and prepare for his coming. It's the same with Jesus. They had waited hundreds of years for the Messiah to come. The Old Testament kept pointing towards this Messiah who is to come. The Old Testament kept pointing toward this promised one, the Messiah. And so they waited and waited and waited and waited for this promise to be fulfilled, for the Messiah to show up. But he didn't just say, I'm here. There was one who came before him who would announce his arrival and who, who would point to him and say, he is the promised Messiah. That was the role of John the Baptist. Look at at the text and let's see how it unfolds. Verse 4. And so John came. That And so John came is referring back to verses 2 and 3. That Isaiah and Malachi were prophesying that one was come before the Messiah. And so John came, parentheses, in fulfillment to the Old Testament prophecies. And so John came to announce that Jesus was coming into the world. Now, I want you to notice this. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And I want you to notice in verse 5 that John was very popular. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Look up here on the map. The whole Judean countryside, this area right here, and all of Jerusalem. I have my glasses on. I'm trying to squint. Where's Jerusalem? There it is. There it is. All right. So, so this Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem came over to the Jordan River somewhere in here because that's where John was, was baptizing people. And it said that he was very popular. Now, why do you suppose John was so popular? Give me some ideas. Why do you suppose when John came and he started preaching what the message he was preaching, why was John so popular? Why were people from all over the area coming to hear him? Why would he be so popular? He was a sight. Yeah, he was something to watch. That's for sure. Some people may have thought that he was the one, the promised one. And in fact, he later says, "I'm not the one." Uh, sir, he didn't have okay. Didn't have a threatening approach. Yeah. Say what? Yes. Since the days of Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet, God had been silent for 400 years. 400 years they had waited for the voice of God to reappear. Again, the voice of God would be through the prophets. For 400 years they had waited for a prophet to come. When John the Baptist came on the scene, speaking on behalf of God, preparing the way for Jesus, they recognized this is the prophet we've been waiting for. This is the voice of God. And so when word got out that God was speaking again through the prophet, John the Baptist, if you will, all of a sudden he became very, very popular because there had been no prophetic voice since the days of Malachi 400 years before. Now, let's keep going. John called the people to repentance, and he pointed to Jesus, verse 7, and this was his message. After me, this is, this is what he kept saying to the people, after me will come one more powerful than I am. And You think I'm powerful, John would say. You're impressed by what I'm doing. There's going to come one who's more powerful than I am. Uh, the thongs of whose sandals I, I'm not worthy to stoop down to untie. That must have really got their attention. He said, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, so Mark, in telling the story of Jesus, says, before I tell you the story of Jesus, I have to tell you what the Old Testament said, Isaiah, Malachi, and then I have to tell you what John the Baptist said, so you'll be ready to understand the story of Jesus. So then he opens up for the first time in verse 9 to tell us the story of of Jesus. Beginning in verse 9, these few verses cover both the baptism of Jesus and his temptation experience. I want you to look at this, verse 9, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love with you I am well pleased we 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 read that last week and talked about it verse 12 at once the spirit sent him out into the desert and he was in the desert for how long 40 days being tempted by satan he was with the wild animals and the angels attended to him i want you to notice that john summarizes the baptism of jesus and his temptation experience in five verses That's not very much, is it? It goes back to the fact that, remember, uh, I said John, I meant Mark. Uh, I've got John the Baptist on my mind. Mark summarizes the temptation experience and the baptism of Jesus in five verses. It goes back to the fact that Mark's intention is to show Jesus in action. He, he really, when he writes his entire gospel, he's showing Jesus in action. Jesus on the move. Putting more emphasis on what Jesus did rather than what Jesus said. And to compare it, though, I, I did a little research looking at it. I thought, well, what did the other gospel writers do? For example, you don't need to write this down, but Matthew spent five verses talking about the baptism... And 11 verses talking about the temptation. So Matthew talking about those same two things did it in 16 verses. Whereas Mark did it in 5. Luke was very similar. Luke, to, to, Luke, Luke took two verses to talk about the baptism. And 13 verses to talk about the temptation. So he used 15 verses to refer to the baptism and temptation of Jesus. Whereas Mark, only five verses. Again, because Mark is talking about, let me show you what he did. Now, it says in verse 9, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth. Nazareth was his hometown where he grew up. Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. At that time, what time is that referring to? Well, more than likely... If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. More than likely, Jesus began his ministry around approximately A.D. 27. A.D. 27, at the age of 30 years old. Now, write down this reference if you're taking notes and go to Luke chapter 3, verse 23. How do we know that Jesus started his ministry at 30 years old? Well, we know because, thankfully, Luke, the historian, the physician... Gives us some very good information. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Okay. So now we know. Why 30? Here's what you need to realize. 30 was the age when a Levite, in the Old Testament, 30 was the age when a Levite undertook his service or began his service. If you were a Levite and you were going to serve in the temple, uh, you were able to do that once you hit 30, because 30 was was when you were considered mature. You thought you were mature when you were 16, didn't you? You thought you were mature when you were 21. In the Old Testament days, and even in the New Testament days, the standard for maturity was 30. Levites couldn't serve until they hit the age of 30. And so Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30. Now, let's just jump ahead now in verse 14 because Mark quickly moves into action, showing Jesus in action. Verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And here's what he was proclaiming. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. So he's starting to preach. That's how he begins. And notice that he calls the first disciples. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him, and when they'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets, and without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. That's what you see in Mark. One thing, then the next, then the next, then the next, then the next. We, we go in the book of Mark, we, we're reading about his temptation, we're reading about his baptism, and then all of a sudden, boom, he's calling his first disciples. And then he calls again, and he calls some more, and he calls some more, and he's on the move, and he's running. Then you get to verse 21. Such an important verse in verse 21. Verse 21, they, they went to where, Church. You know where that is by now, don't you? Well, I'm just going to have to. That's bad. bad. There we go. They went to Capernaum. He was down here, baptized somewhere along in here. Made his way back towards home. Remember, Nazareth was where he grew up. But he didn't go back to Nazareth. He went to Capernaum. Let's look at this and see what he did there. He went to Capernaum, and where did he go when he went to Capernaum? Synagogue. Can, do you all have that picture? Can you put the picture of the synagogue up? Uh, the ruins of the synagogue in Capernaum. There we go. So we went to a building that looks something like this. Again, it's not this building. This was built in the 4th or 5th century on top of the foundation of the, the original synagogue that Jesus was in. But the synagogue operated in this way on the left hand side the men would sit and on the right hand side the women would sit and along the back wall is where the leaders would sit so let me talk to you about what a synagogue is a synagogue the word synagogue means a gathering or an assembly of people a synagogue in a Jewish is a Jewish building designed basically for the instruction of scripture I don't think of a synagogue in terms of that's where they went to worship. Technically, you could say that that's true because they read the Scriptures and they prayed, but it's not worship like you and I would think of worship. The synagogue was the assembly for instruction in the Word of God. It's the place they went for the reading of Scripture, teaching, and prayer. Now, we're not exactly sure when the concept of a synagogue developed, but it was likely during the Babylonian exile. They were, they were removed from Jerusalem. Prisoners removed from Jerusalem, taken to Babylon. They were in exile there. Now, normally, if you were in Jerusalem, you would go to the temple to worship. You couldn't do that if you were living in Babylon. You didn't have a temple to go to. You were a slave there. You didn't have the freedom to go anywhere. And so, what they did was they began to have these assemblies of people. And I'm sure in Babylon they didn't have a building. But they had these assemblies of people that came to be called synagogues. And it was a place where they could read the Torah, the law, together and discuss it and teach from it. Let me show you an example of how important the synagogue was. Uh, If you go to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, just hang with me. I know we're going slowly through the first chapter, but that's intentional, and we'll speed up as we get to the other chapters. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. What I want you to understand about the synagogues is that they became a place where the gospel spread rapidly in the ministry of Jesus and in the ministry of the apostles especially the apostle Paul apostle Paul had the habit of whenever he would go to a new area the first place he would start would be in the synagogue why because it's an assembly of people it's an assembly of people gathered around the scripture and so the apostle Paul would go and say okay let me take the scriptures and let me read it to you and explain it to you and that gave him a foundation to then progress to talk about the gospel now here's what I want you to notice when they had this synagogue when you would go to the synagogue and the men would be on this side and the women on that side and the leaders would be standing there it was common for somebody to stand unroll the scroll the Torah the law unroll the scroll and read from it he would stand up and he would read from it and then the Torah, the the law, the scroll would be rolled back up and he would sit down and he would teach. That was a standard way of conducting the synagogue service. With that in mind, read the text now, verse 16. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. In other words, Jesus had the custom of going on a regular basis to the synagogue to study and worship there and pray and read the scriptures there and it says and he stood up to read which is what they would always do in the synagogue he stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him unrolling it he found the place where it is written and here's the, the scripture he was reading, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. That's when he's ready to teach now. He's, he stood up, he read the scripture, now he's going to sit down. He's going to sit down right in the middle He's going to sit down, and now he's going to teach. So he's just read from the prophet Isaiah. He sits down to teach, and the eyes are, of everyone are on him. They're listening to him. And after he reads this prophecy, he says to them, Today, the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's prophecy from Isaiah, 100, 700 years ago, It's now fulfilled. In your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they ask? So they're, they're trying to figure this out. Skip down for a second time to verse 31. Look what happened when he left that area. and Then he went back to Capernaum. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. Where do you suppose he was teaching the people? Exactly. Verse 32, they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon with evil spirit. And, and we've read that, that scripture last time where Jesus cast out the evil spirit. I'm taking a little bit of time to help you understand the importance of the synagogue to the community. The synagogue was, was a central part of that Jewish community and also it was a central part of spreading the gospel in the ministry of Jesus and in, in the ministry of the apostles as they went out to spread the gospel. Now, going back to Mark chapter 1, let's finish that chapter real quickly. Going back to Mark chapter 1. Just look at the headings, if you will, of what happened that day. It says, just in chapter 1, the headings, uh, calling the first disciples. Jesus drives out an an evil spirit that was on the Sabbath in Capernaum at the synagogue. Jesus heals many. Let's just read that one real quick. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they took Jesus... About her, so he, or he told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up, and the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he had not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And then in verses 40 and through the rest of the end of the chapter, he touches and heals a leper. So, so get this picture in your mind. In chapter 1, we see Jesus driving out an evil spirit. In chapter 1, we see Jesus healing many people. The town is gathering outside the door. And he's healing many people. And in chapter 1, He does what nobody else would do. He touched a leper and He healed the leper. So in the very first chapter of Mark's gospel of this story, the, this good news of Jesus... Mark is showing us that Jesus is one who has power over everything. That Jesus is one who has power over evil spirits. He has power over diseases. He has power over everything. Which makes verse 35 very significant. Chapter 1, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Now remember, Mark tells us here, it was very early in the morning when Jesus went out to pray. And sometime after that, probably still early in the morning, the crowd is already starting to gather. People are so interested in Jesus that he's done so much as far as healing and teaching and casting out demons that the crowds are gathering already early in the morning. And the disciples are pretty excited about this. We're building a big following here. We're getting a pretty big group here. So so they're excited about it. They've never seen anything like this. And so they come to Jesus and said, excuse me, excuse me, I know you're praying, but, but there's a crowd of people out there that want to see you. Look what Jesus said. Verse 38. Jesus repri- replied, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. I wrote down in my notes when, after Jesus said, let's go somewhere else. Here's what I wrote in my notes. We have to resist the pull of the already convinced so that we can take the gospel to those who have not yet heard. People in Capernaum were already convinced. There was a crowd of people. And Jesus said, yeah, I know they're excited. Yeah, I know they're convinced. Yeah, I know they're out there and they're waiting on me. Let's go somewhere else because I want to take the gospel to people who have not yet heard. In chapter 1, or verse 39, So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and driving out demons. Now, I want you to notice how this chapter ends, and then we're going to pick up the pace. I want you to notice how this chapter ends. Verse 45, instead he went out and began to talk freely. This is the man with leprosy. Jesus had told him, now don't tell anybody, and we talked about that last week. Instead, this man who had been healed of leprosy went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, now notice how this chapter ends. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him from where? From everywhere. I just want you to take note of the growing popularity of Jesus. People are starting to come to him from everywhere. We're just in the first chapter of the story of Jesus. We've just got through the first chapter, and already the crowds are so big that people are coming to him from everywhere. Now, let's go to chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered, guess where? Base of operation is the place where he kind of hung out the most. He, he entered Capernaum. The people heard he had come home. It, isn't that interesting? Now, now it's referred to as his home. Nazareth is where he grew up, but this was his home now. Probably staying at Simon Peter's house. We don't take time to read it. Chapter 1, verse 21 and verse 29. Uh, Probably when he went to Capernaum, he stayed at Simon Peter's house. But again, I want you to see the amazing popularity of Jesus. Verse 2. So many people, or so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. That is when he was in Capernaum and he got to perhaps Simon Peter's house there was so many people gathered around there was no room left for them. Uh, Verse 3 Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them and since they could not get to him since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through, lowered the mat, and the paralyzed man was lying on it. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. I may preach on this later, so I'm not going to get too far into this text. But again, I just want you to see this growing popularity that there's so many people around what probably was the house of Simon Peter, so many people around him that when the people, these four guys bring their friend to Jesus, there's no way to get through the crowd. That's how big the crowd is. No way to make your way through the crowd. So they get the, the, somehow they get the idea, let's go on the roof and dig a hole. Again, I'm going to preach, maybe preach on that, so I'm not going to get into that. But here's what I want you to see. Look what happened in verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, when Jesus saw this man, he announced, son, your sins are forgiven, and the teachers of the law... They were offended by that. Verse 8, immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that, that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, dot, 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 paused. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all, This amazed everyone, and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. If you're taking notes, put down in verse 6, the opposition began to develop against Jesus. Beginning in verse 6, you begin to see this opposition starting to develop against Jesus. The teachers of the law said, Who are you to say his sins are forgiven? That's something only God can do. You don't have the right or the authority to say his sins are forgiven. You're blaspheming it. You're you're taking the place of God. Opposition, watch this, opposition began to grow, began to develop. And so, because of that opposition that began to to blossom, if you will, look in verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. I told you he kind of liked to hang out there, it seems like. A large crowd came to him. We're not surprised by the large crowd now. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told them, and Levi got up and followed him. While, they were, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and, quote, sinners were eating with him and his disciples, where there were many who followed him. Now, verse 16. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? More than likely, that was not a very friendly question. More than likely, they were ticked off. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then, notice what happens in verse 18. I want you to get a feel for how the opposition is developing. In verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Then Jesus explains this whole concept. Uh, to them about why that's happening. But again, I want you to notice this low-level opposition, always questioning, always questioning what he's doing or what his disciples are not doing or why he says what he says. Verse 23, one Sabbath, Jesus going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along they began to pick some heads of grain and the disciples said to him, or I'm sorry, the Pharisees said to him, look, why why are they doing what is unlawful? on the Sabbath. Once again, this opposition developing, asking questions, questioning his motives, his intentions, what they do and what they don't do. Low level right now, but always questioning. Opposition starting to develop. Chapter 3. We're moving more quickly now. Chapter 3. Another time, he went into the synagogue. Surprise, surprise. Another example of how the synagogue was important in the life of the Jewish community and in the ministry of Jesus and the spread of the gospel. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them, watch this, verse 2, the opposition is starting to grow more intense. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Opposition is growing now to the point that they're actually watching for something that he does wrong. They're looking for an example, for a reason to accuse him, looking for the opportunity to bring him down. Jesus, verse 3, said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. In other words, what I'm about to do, I want everybody to see this. Verse 4, then Jesus asked him, which, or asked them, that is these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, these people who are out to get him. Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in what? In anger. And notice this next phrase. Deeply distressed at their stubborn heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was completely restored. Now don't miss, this next verse is highlighted in my Bible. Don't miss verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. That is an important verse. For the first couple of chapters, we've seen this low-level opposition it's kind of like boiling water. You know how the water slowly, you'll see a little bit of a a bubble here and there, a little bubble, a little bubble, and then it gets bigger bubbles and more bubbles and more. That's kind of the way this opposition was starting to boil, getting more and more intense. Why don't your disciples do this? And why do you all do that? And why would you say this? And and that that water is starting to boil a little bit more and more and more. And then when we get to chapter 3, verse 6, they're looking Or in chapter 3, they're looking for a way to accuse him. They're looking, waiting for him to do something they can pounce on. And then when he heals this man on the Sabbath, chapter 3, verse 6, they said, that's it. That's what we've been waiting for. And it's amazing what it says. They begin to plot how they might kill. Can you look at verse 6 and tell me what the two groups are, who the two groups are that are working together on this plot? You may or may not know this, but those two groups of people normally didn't work together. Uh, The Pharisees, one of the three prominent parties of Judaism at that time, the three prominent parties of Judaism in the days of Jesus were Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Essenes. For the Pharisees, at least, their goal was to live in strict accordance to the law. Their goal, uh, their intentions were good. We want to live according to the law. But they got very hypocritical about it all. But, but that was their goal, to live according to the law. And the Pharisees were opposed to the Roman rule over their country. Absolutely opposed to Romans ruling their country. Uh, because it restricted their fulfilling the law. Herodians, on the other hand, Herodians were influential Jews who actually supported the Roman rule of the government. The Herodians were people who basically wanted to rub shoulders with the important people. And if if we can rub shoulders with the important people in Rome, we can keep things going good here in Judea. And so if if we can just kind of have a good relationship with our our Roman rulers, uh, we're going to be in much better shape financially here in Judea. So the Herodians were more political Pharisees were more about the law we're going to live by the law Herodians are no we're going to to grease that hand in Rome so we can get by these two people these two groups didn't work together in fact they didn't like one another which makes verse 6 even more astounding the Pharisees and the Herodians working together plotting to kill Jesus um Let's go real quickly, Matthew chapter 22, over to the left, Matthew chapter 22, verse 15 through 17. Just an example, another example of the Pharisees and the Herodians working together, trying to take Jesus down. Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to do what? To trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with who? The Herodians. They're in on this thing together. Teacher, they said, we, we know you're a man of integrity. and That you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us. What is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So if he said, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, the Herodians could report him to Rome and be done with him. He's an insurrectionist. He doesn't support Rome. If he said, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then the Jews could go back and say, see, he, he's siding with the Romans. He's not living according to the law. So as it, they had him, they thought, they had him backed in a corner Jesus, knowing their evil intent, verse 18, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. This is a genius move. Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, Guys, guys, whose picture is on this coin? What are you talking about? Whose picture? Whose picture is on the coin? Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. Just an example of how Jesus was standing against the opposition But how intense the opposition was to bring him down. But going back to Mark chapter 3, we're going to speed read through the rest of this. What is it, 654? Mark chapter 3. I want you to notice his popularity is growing. Though it says in chapter 3, verse 6, that the Herodians of, and the Pharisees were trying to kill him, were plotting how they might kill him. The very next verse says, Jesus withdrew his, with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed him. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan, and from Tyre and Sidon. Look up here on, on well, if you go to the map, guys, go back to the map. Read the verse to me and tell me where these people came from. What was the first one? Judea, right here. So, the, so people were coming from Judea, and where, where were they coming to? Where was he? Galilee, right here. So people were coming from Judea all the way up here to the Sea of Galilee, to this area. All right, so from Judea and where else? From Jerusalem, we know where that is, coming all the way up here, where else? What was it? Idumea, right there. Look how far south they're coming. Idumea, all the way up there. Where else? The region of Tyre and Sinai in the north here. Tyre and Sinai. So look at this. What we're talking about is his popularity had grown so much that now they're not just coming from Capernaum, or this area to hear him teach. Now they're coming from the entire nation. So it says in chapter 3, verse 6, the Herodians and the Pharisees were plotting to kill him, but at the same time, his popularity was higher than it had ever been. Now, we're going to have to... Virtually all of Israel coming to see him. Um... Well, we're not going to get done, but that doesn't surprise you. Verse 13, chapter 3, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to Him those He wanted, and they came to Him, and He appointed twelve, designating them apostles. This is a high-water mark in the book of Mark. Designating them apostles, and here's what that means, that they might be with Him, and that He might send them out to do what? Preach. He wants them to, to go out and preach. He he wants to multiply his ministry. He starts, watch this, he starts training them to take over. He knows that he's not going to be here long. He knows his ministry on earth is brief, so he's training the disciples to take over. So that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons, and then those twelve are appointed. Now, in chapter 3, verse 20, we'll end with this. Chapter 3, verse 20. The opposition just continues to grow. Verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house again and a crowd gathered so that that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. That's how big the crowd was and how demanding the crowd was. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, what? He's out of his mind. So now we're we're starting to see that the opposition is not just the Pharisees and the Herodians, but now the Pharisee, or now the, the opposition, includes his own family. His own family thought he was out of his mind. Even those who were closest to him were slow to understand who he was and what he had come to do. Don't miss the fact that his own family was opposing. What he was trying to do. He's out of his mind. We need to do something about him. He's an embarrassment to the family. He's out here acting like he's God or something. He's out here performing. He's out of his mind. Verse 22. Not not only was it the family, but it was also the teachers of the law Teachers of the law, by the way, were trained men who studied the law vocationally. That was their occupation. They studied the law. They were sometimes called scribes. They would copy the law letter by letter. And because they would copy the law letter by letter, line by line, they became experts in the law. And they became teachers of the law that they had, stopped, that they had copied and studied. So, let's read this and we'll close. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said... He's possessed by Beelzebub. Their expert opinion. These are the men who had studied the law. These are the men who had devoted their entire... That was their vocation. was every day to study the law and to copy the law. These were the men as they studied the law, they understood God's great agenda. And their expert opinion was, family said he's out of his mind. Teachers of the law said, oh, it's worse than that. He's possessed by Beelzebub, prince of demons. That's who Beelzebub was. He's, he's possessed. That was their expert opinion. Well, let, let me stop there for a moment. We won't get into chapter 4, but but let me just say this in closing. You and I can read about the opposition, but we will never know. We will never know the power of opposition that our Lord faced. We will never understand the depth of opposition that our Lord faced. We will never know how dark and evil the opposition was our Lord faced. We can read about it. We can read that the Herodians and the Pharisees plotted to kill him, and that's evil. That's dark. We we can read about how the teachers of the law were questioning and opposing everything we did. We we can read how his family thought he was out of his mind. We can read how the teachers of the law came from Jerusalem, the experts that said, we've studied the law of our lives, and this guy's possessed. But he had to live it. Now, get this. He had to live it. He had to experience that opposition as he walked toward the cross. And then, then the opposition was so great, the evil was so dark, that he cried out from the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when I tell you on Sunday morning, Jesus loves you, it ought to mean something. Father, thank You that You do love us and that You experienced the wrath of this world through Your Son, Jesus Christ, the opposition of evil. And He experienced it nearly every day of His earthly life, every day at least of His earthly ministry. He experienced the the wrath of, Judgment, the opposition of evil. Thank you that He deliberately, intentionally continued to walk toward the cross for us. He deliberately, intentionally continued to share the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. Thank you for praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.